It is a privilege to be able to gather with you all this morning and to be able to worship. It's uh, always a blessing when we can come together with the body of Christ and to celebrate his faithfulness. And while we do celebrate what he's already done, we look forward to the day when he returns. And we sing a song entitled Glorious Day. What a day that will be when Jesus we shall see. Uh, what a day that will be when we get to see him face to face and to be able to rejoice in his presence and all of the struggles that we face in this world will become a thing of the past. And we'll be able to look forward to that day. And when that day does arrive, um, it will change everything. And we celebrate the fact that he is already faithful. Uh, I, I have the opportunity to be a part of several groups online and to be able to look at some of the things that other pastors are saying and different things like that. And one of the statements that I read this week stated that one of the things that is missing in the church today is spirit-filled preaching. Uh, many churches around the country are in decline, and it's not because they don't have good programs. It's not because they don't have good people. But when it comes down to it, spirit-filled preaching has become something that is of the past. We remember to the good old days when the Spirit of God moved among his people. Well, the truth is, this is the good old days. Actually, I, was, I had the opportunity this week to share with uh, Southern Wesleyan University. They had a group of individuals who were being commissioned uh, to go out and to serve. These are graduating seniors in their ministry program. Uh, it was a privilege because five of them were folks from our church. And we celebrate that. There's at least one that is Hannah. She's upstairs. She's up there doing, serving right now. And then the others are individuals that participate in our second service. And we do celebrate the fact that God is raising up a new generation will, who will be able to proclaim the word of God in a way that is faithful to the spirit of God. And we do definitely celebrate that. One of the things I shared with them this past week is that we actually have a great message to share. We believe that God's going to do great things. Actually, in Joshua chapter 3, verse 5, it tells us to consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And I believe today that God is preparing the church. He is preparing to do some amazing things. And what it really comes down to is we need to be a people. We need to be a church. We need to be pastors and leaders who are consecrated to the Lord. That means belonging to him, recognizing that we are reserved for a holy purpose to accomplish great things in his name. And I believe God is already in the process of doing that. I believe there are great days that are ahead of us as a church. Today we live in a world that is very much unpredictable. There are so many things going on that have the potential to shake our faith and even our trust in God. We are very much like what it was in the days of Noah, when the earth was flooded with rain because the earth was corrupt, as recorded in Genesis chapter 7. God had to wipe the face of the earth every, of every living creature that he had made, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The word of God encourages us to live by faith, not by sight. Satan, who is the God of this world for a short while, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he has blinded the eyes of so many people that they cannot do, they cannot believe that there is a God that truly loves them unconditionally. One of the reasons is because maybe we have not 
been faithful to proclaim the word and the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. But God is still love, and he is still on the throne. He still has the authority and the ability to take global brokenness and bring restoration. There are various times throughout the Bible where we see that the people believed the reports of others. For example, in Numbers chapter 13, Moses sent 12 spies out to check out the land, the promised land that was promised to the people of God. As they came back, all 12 spies came back with a glowing, beautiful report about what that land looked like. However, 10 of them came back with a report that although it was beautiful, it also was a land filled with giants, and the challenge was too big. Two of them said, yes, the giants are there. Yes, the challenge is big, but our God is bigger. And unfortunately, the people believed the report of the ten as opposed to the two. The result was that they were not able to enter into the promised land for another 40 years. And then there are positive reports that were given, yet the people seemed to ignore those reports. For example, in Isaiah chapter 40, we read Isaiah's words, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. He begins that address with, do you not know? Have you not heard? He is not the first prophet to proclaim the goodness and the faithfulness and the strength of God, yet apparently the people did not believe the word that had been presented. The Lord has been faithful. He has shown up over and over again. He has even sent other messengers, prophets, to proclaim the good news, yet the people seem to be living as if they did not believe the reports that had already been given to them. But God is not content with his people not knowing the truth, so he sends yet another messenger. We've been working through the book of Acts as we look at different sermons that are delivered by God's people. In today's passage, in Acts chapter 10, we see God sending a messenger to a man named Cornelius. It should be noted that Cornelius is not a Jew. Instead, he appears to be a Gentile of great influence and resources. For the most part, he really doesn't fit the criteria for the New Testament followers of Christ. Jesus seemed to pick the simple people, often the uneducated, the common man. He chose people who were rejected by the rest of society, and he would turn them into something spectacular. Let me suggest that God is still reaching unlikely people today. He is still reaching the simple, the poverty-stricken, the ordinary man and woman. However, there is not a man or a woman on this earth that God does not want to reach with the good news of Jesus Christ, the message of hope. In order to accomplish this with Cornelius, God causes two separate men to have visions. 
The first, Cornelius, has a vision of an angel who commends his pursuit of God and then instructs him to send for Peter. He even gives him the address. He's staying over there on Straight Street. Send someone for Peter immediately. And so Cornelius sends for Peter. And then there's Peter. He is preparing for lunch. He's hungry. He's focusing on the Lord, and God gives him a vision of clean and unclean foods. In this vision, God tells him to eat even that which is unclean. Yet Peter is appalled at the thought of it. A good, faithful Jew like Peter would never eat that which was called unclean. But God responds, do not call unclean that which I have made clean. After receiving the vision three times, because apparently it wasn't enough for Peter to see it once, God instructs Peter to go with the men who are about to come for you. I almost picture this statement, go with the three men that are coming to you, as being almost like a modern-day instruction to someone to answer the phone right before the phone rings. Peter doesn't know that they're coming, but all of a sudden, they're knocking at the door. Well, Peter ends up going to the house of Cornelius, and he is welcomed not only by Cornelius, but a crowd of people whom Cornelius has invited. I want to take a moment and look at the message that he presents to the crowd that day. But before I do that, I want to point out that God didn't need Peter to communicate this message to Cornelius. You guys heard me earlier. I read the scripture passage to you. I read the entirety of really Peter's message to them. You know that God did not, Peter, did not need Peter to accomplish what was being done. We know that God has already communicated to Cornelius through an angel. That means he didn't need Peter. That's why he sent for Peter in the first place. If the angel could tell him to send for Peter, then surely that same angel could have also told him about the Messiah who had come. So why did God involve Peter in this process? I have two primary responses to that question. First, this interaction was as much for Peter as it was for Cornelius. Yes, Cornelius needed to know that Jesus Christ had come and he was the Messiah for the world, and Peter would declare that in that message. But again, the angel could have done that. Maybe this was more for Peter than it was for Cornelius. You see, Peter was operating on the assumption that Jesus Christ had come for the Jewish people because he himself was a Jew because they were clean and everybody else was unclean. Apparently, it didn't register that so often Jesus would cross boundaries. He went to the Samaritans. He talked to a woman at the well, and she brought all of her Samaritan friends, and Jesus proclaimed hope and love and grace to the people who weren't necessarily Jews. Peter is operating on the assumption that this is all about the Jews, perhaps what God is trying to do is to help Peter recognize that this hope was intended for all people. Second part of this is simply Peter had a firsthand testimony that he needed to share. 
He had experienced the resurrected Christ, and his story would be one that Cornelius would be able to very easily comprehend. Let's look at the sermon which Peter delivers that day. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news and peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The first thing that he addresses is anyone who fears the Lord or does what is right. Now, it's not in your notes here, but the word anyone is very important today. Before he gets into anything else, he has just lumped the Jews and the Gentiles together into one group. He doesn't say that any Jews who fear the Lord, but rather anyone who fears the Lord. This is important. The gospel message is for all who would believe, regardless of their background, their skin color, or their current social status. It is likely that Cornelius was considered a very important person. At this point, Peter probably was still relatively low on the social status position. But it didn't matter. God didn't come to save one of them. He came to save all of them. But this term fear is also important. When we see the term fear in the scriptures, we most often are not talking about a cowardice type of fear, but rather a reverent type of fear. It's about respect and awe for God, recognizing his greatness. Consider the words of Psalm 111, verse 10, which says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. This would be a theme that is echoed multiple times, especially in the Psalms. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In many ways, this is about perspective. If you think you're smart and you can accomplish much, but you do not fear God, well, you're probably not as smart as you think you are. You need to recognize that even on your best day, you'll never be as smart as God. And every bit of wisdom that you have already comes from God anyways. Or listen to the words of Proverbs 10, 27. The fear of the Lord belong, prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. It's an interesting statement. 
my mind immediately goes back to another promise of long life that is found in the scriptures. It's in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, where we are told that if we honor our mother and father, your days on the earth will be long. Now, I'm not sure if this is a promise of blessing or simply a realization that you're just naturally better off doing things God's way or the way that your mom and dad tell you. It's less stressful for certain. But that really doesn't matter. What matters is that if you fear the Lord, if you honor your parents, long life is what awaits you. Now, I will say that this verse contrasting those who fear the Lord with those who are wicked, the one that I just read to you from Proverbs 10, 27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. This verse that contrasts those who fear the Lord with those who are wicked is also very important. You see, the idea is that those who fear the Lord will not be wicked. That means that they will not continue to participate and the wicked, sinful acts that had been a part of their lives before this fear of the Lord developed. This is where the doing what is right comes into play from Peter's sermon. You cannot claim to fear God, yet continue to live in wickedness and sin. Far too many in the church have tried to do that, and it should not be so. We have justified which sinful acts are acceptable based on what society has determined what is acceptable. When it comes down to it, sin is never okay in the life of a believer. If we genuinely fear the Lord, the wicked acts will come to an end. In fact, this same idea is echoed to us in Psalm 128, verse 1. It says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. I intentionally included Psalm 128, verse 2 there, because I think it's important to see that God does promise blessing for those who will walk in obedience to him. Fearing the Lord is more than just saying you respect who God is. It is a respect that leads to obedience, which then leads to God's blessing. Well, then Peter begins to tell the story of Jesus. Now, it should be noted that there is apparently the expectation that you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. That means that the story of Jesus had not been occurring in a vacuum, but even this audience with Cornelius, they've heard the stories. People had already heard bits and pieces of Jesus' story. They had heard about the Holy Spirit power, about the miraculous works that he had done. Yet it's as if they just haven't connected the dots as to how this relates to their own lives. The argument could be made that the same thing happens today among those who have heard of Jesus. We are surrounded by a world of people who have heard bits and pieces of the story of Jesus Christ, yet many do not understand how this story relates to their own lives. The result is that many continue to live in sin, 
not knowing the grace and the transformation that is available to them. He's part of an historical event. He's part of a religion, but he seems irrelevant to them. And I wish I was just talking about people outside the church. Unfortunately, for many of us, we have heard of this Jesus. And we talk about this Jesus on Sunday. But many of us have not connected the dots to our own personal lives. So we continue in sin. In Cornelius' situation, it is likely that he had heard of some of the active participants in Jesus' story. They knew of his death, but Peter isn't alone in talking about his resurrection. Listen first to what he says in our passage, beginning there in verse 39. It says, and we are witnesses. We, that means more than just me. We are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. This story is corroborated over and over again in the New Testament. In Acts 13, 31, it says to us, for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And in Acts 1.8, Jesus instructed his followers, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the uttermost. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, we are told that on one occasion, the resurrected Jesus actually appears to a group of 500 people all at the same time. So the point is that what Peter is testifying to is not some made-up story. This is true. Yes, this is Jesus' story, but this is also Peter's story. It is the story of each one who had come in contact with him following the resurrection. Peter was there. He witnessed it himself. This was his story too. In fact, for Peter, this is a very personal story. Remember that the resurrection of Christ comes almost immediately after the failure of Peter. On the night of Jesus' arrest, Peter would deny Christ three times, and the third time after doing so, he would actually make eye contact with Jesus, and we are told that Peter went away and wept bitterly, recognizing that he had failed his best friend, his Messiah. My guess is that as Peter tells the story of Jesus, it is probably a very uncomfortable story, because... Jesus' first encounter with one of his first encounters with Peter following the resurrection is on the seashore. And as they are on the seashore, Peter and his sin is addressed. Jesus confronts him. Peter, you remember back at the Last Supper? We ate together, and you said you loved me more than everybody else. Peter, do you even love me? 
don't know about you, but if I'm Peter and I'm telling this story, there are certain details I might want to leave out. But the gospel is very clear. It is there. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter, along with each of the other disciples, would back up their stories with the way they would faithfully serve the Lord in the years to come with all but one of them dying to communicate this story to the world around them. There is no way that they would have so uniformly held to their story unless it was actually true. I read recently that the problem with telling a lie is you have to remember the previous lies. The problem here for the disciples is if all of them are telling a lie, at some point, someone has to come clean. But they never did. It's because they didn't tell a lie. The application for us is that Jesus' story was also Peter's story. But in the same way, Jesus' story is also our story. If you've experienced the resurrected Christ, you have a story to tell. If you've experienced the transformation that Jesus made possible, then you have a story to tell. If you've experienced the hope and the grace that is found in Jesus Christ, then you have a story to tell. This is not just Jesus' story from 2,000 years ago. This is your story, and the rest of the world needs to hear it. But there's one other part of this story. It is found in the fact that we are called to be living witnesses to the resurrected Christ. What I mean by that is that your words, your verbal testimony about the resurrected Christ is important, but your actions speak louder than words. 1 Peter 2.12 says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will See your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That means that the way you live your life will do much to communicate to the world around you that you serve a resurrected Christ. Again, there are many in the church who will talk about the resurrected Christ, but it's when people begin to see the transformed life that they will know that the resurrected Christ is still all-powerful and can transform them as well. I recently read the story of a great evangelist who had seen many thousands of people come to the altar at his revival meetings. While traveling back through one of the towns where he had previously preached, he came upon a man along the side of the road who was too drunk to even stand. He immediately began to call upon this man to repent of his sin. The drunk man suddenly came to his senses and realized who he was speaking with. His response, oh, I've already repented of my sin. In fact, I was saved at one of your revival services. The evangelist would write that he was immediately cut to the heart. He questioned what kind of salvation Is this that a man could be saved yet continue to live in his sin? He added, 
surely this is no salvation at all. His point was that if this man were truly saved, his life should have been changed. Let the story of Jesus result in you becoming a living witness transformed by the Holy Spirit's power. The last thing that I want you to see today is that this story was not isolated to 2,000 years ago. I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but it started long before Jesus came, and it continues now. Look at the way Peter puts it in his sermon. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets, that means the ones that came long before Jesus and even those who are speaking here after Jesus has been crucified. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everything before Christ and after his resurrection have been pointing people to the same story. When the prophets came, they proclaimed a Messiah who would come. They were talking about something that would not happen in their own lifetimes, but it was something that humanity was longing for. Redemption, to be made right. From the very moment sin entered the world, there was division between man and God. God didn't want us to live forever at that moment because he didn't want us to remain in sin for all eternity. But Jesus Christ became the sacrifice that would pay for our sins so that we could have the promise of eternal life again. Everything from Genesis to Revelation to even today has been pointing people to Jesus Christ. It is the story of forgiveness and grace, yet it does involve judgment and wrath according to this passage, but it's really the story of forgiveness and grace. I would imagine that as this message is presented to Cornelius, there was a very encouraging message. As they heard the message of Jesus Christ, there was probably a little bit of frustration. I remember talking to some missionaries and they were talking about showing the Jesus film. And as they showed the Jesus film to the people in this particular tribe, the people who were watching became angry and bitter as they watched the abuse that Jesus was taking. They wanted to get revenge on the ones who had abused this man who had done so much good. And the truth is, I imagine that Cornelius probably became a little bitter toward those who abused Jesus. But the message was not about the abuse of Jesus. It was there at the end. Salvation. Forgiveness. It was grace to those who would respond. We're told that on that day, everybody who was present, everyone in Cornelius' household, and all those who had gathered, that every one of them believed. And then they're baptized. And then the Holy Spirit fell on each one of them. And it became a great day of rejoicing. And afterwards, Peter would go back and he would tell the other Jews, the other leaders, that the same Holy Spirit that has fallen upon us 
is now falling upon the Gentiles as well. What happened was there was spirit-filled preaching and lives were being changed and the Spirit of God was dwelling in his people. It's the same thing that God desires to do here today. To allow his spirit to transform people's lives. It is the same hope that was offered to them that is being offered to us. I challenge you with a couple things today. Number one, if you have not yet experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you have not been forgiven of your sins, if you have not been walking in such a way that reflects the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, today is the day to surrender your life to him, to repent of your sins. But likewise, if you are surrounded by a world that desperately needs to know that this Jesus is alive and that he can transform people's lives and that there is a hope and there is a peace, but it is only found in him, you be the one to share that story with others. I'm going to ask everyone to stand. We're going to pray. Everyone, if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. I don't always open up the altar at the end of my message, but I, I wonder today if perhaps someone needs to come to the altar. I wonder today if perhaps some of us who have proclaimed Jesus Christ as resurrected and alive, perhaps have allowed sin to remain in us and we know that it does not belong. And perhaps today, you need to confess your sin before him and to allow him to wash you clean. With every head bowed and eye closed, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand this morning. I'm going to open up the altar. If that's you this morning, maybe at some point you have prayed and you've asked God to forgive you, but you have continued in that sin and you know that it does not belong, right now I'm going to invite you to come and ask God to forgive you of your sin. I'll wait just a few seconds, give you the opportunity to respond. Is there anyone else? Father, as we come before you today, we are so, so grateful for your grace. As we stand and kneel in this room together, Lord, every single one of us has needed your grace. None of us is good. None of us is righteous on our own. But rather, through the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, we can come boldly before your throne. You have forgiven our sins. You have cleansed us from all unrighteousness. Today, for those gathered at the altar, Lord, I pray that your grace would be extended once more. Father, I pray that you would forgive where we have fallen short. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit. And I pray that we would genuinely be transformed. Help us not to just talk a big game, but help us to live the transformed life in front of the world that desperately needs it. Father, I pray right now that you would 
work in and through us so that others may see the living testimony of Jesus Christ in our lives. I pray that you would give us words to speak, that we would be able to boldly proclaim the truth that you love the people around us, but you are not content leaving us in our sin. Father, help us to tell our story, not just your story, but our story. Father, I pray today that you would allow your anointing to rest upon each person who is gathered in this room. But as we leave, let that anointing go with us. Father, I pray today that you would have your way in us. Thank you again for the opportunity to gather with your people. For those who have gathered at the altar this morning, I pray now specifically for your forgiveness and grace. Fill them with your spirit today. And we will give you praise for what you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is truly a privilege to be able to celebrate God's presence. This is not about a church service. This is about the presence of the Lord meeting here with us. And I hope that you have been blessed as I have today. Thank you for being with us this morning. And go in peace.